0: On January 23rd, protests erupted in several cities and towns across Russia in support of Alexei Navalny. He is the anti-corruption activist and political opponent of Vladimir Putin, who was poisoned in an assassination attempt last August. On January 17th, Navalny returned to Russia and was promptly arrested. Then, his organization released a documentary on YouTube purporting to expose massive corruption surrounding Putin himself. On the line with me to discuss the significance of these protests and what they reveal about politics in Russia today is Michael McFall. He served as the U.S. ambassador to Russia from 2012 to 2014. He is now a professor at Stanford University and director of the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. We kick off discussing the biography of Alexei Navalny and why he represents such a challenge to Putin. And the discussion of recent events in Russia provides an entry point to a conversation about a recent academic paper Ambassador McFaul published in the journal International Security. In that paper, he seeks to explain how domestic politics have influenced Russian foreign policymaking under Vladimir Putin. And to that end, we discuss what foreign policy implications may result from this current protest movement in Russia. This is a great conversation. I'll post a link to that international security paper authored by Ambassador McFall in the show notes of this episode. And do encourage you all to read it. It is, you know, published in an academic journal, but the paper itself is extremely accessible to pretty much anyone. Highly recommended. All right, now here is my conversation with Ambassador Michael McFall. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: Well, Alexei Navalny has been involved in politics in Russia for a long time. I think he originally was in a a party called Yabloka when he was a young uh, leader. Um, Over the years, he's made his his political reputation has been connected to the work that he does fighting anti-corruption. He has a an investigative group that does incredibly uh, meticulous, comprehensive work on exposing corruption. He most recently his group just published a video about a Putin palace that has now had about 90 million viewers, I think, on YouTube. You should all go check it out. It has English subtitles, and yeah, what it was it, published just
0: just a, a day or two before we 're talking and it 's just exploded since then
1: yes it 's completely exploded, but what 's unique about it and it 's what what has made him so prominent, I believe, and with uh, unquestionably now the 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 main leader of the democratic opposition inside Russia is that they do their homework. So it's a two-hour movie. It's not a a TikTok video. Uh, It goes into deep, deep details, you know, where they've obviously had uh, informants on the inside help them obtain information. And that's what makes it so uh, damaging to people like uh, President Putin. And the other thing that's new about that video, by the way, uh, you know, up to this point, I could be wrong, but I, I follow his work pretty closely He's generally gone after people around Putin, uh, corruption, uh, the prime minister Medvedev in his time and other uh, people around him. This is the first full length feature film that goes directly at Putin and his corruption. And as you said, he released it very deliberately uh, right as he was on his way back uh, to Russia. If Navalny had been around for a while um, doing
0: dogged work on anti-corruption issues and building a political following, why all of a sudden, it seemed, in August 2020, did Putin go after him directly and try to have him killed? Why then?
1: Well, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, I've, I've known uh, about – I've known Putin forever. I think I met him I, – I mean, I know I met him in the spring of 1991. I dealt with him when I was in the government, written – Lots about him, but we're not yeah, Facebook he, friends. And he he doesn't right. like you very much. I've right. seen but, the first uh, but but let me—it's uh, yeah. an important question. Um, and and remember, as you just said, to underscore for your listeners, I mean, think about how how audacious it was. They used this agent Novacek to try to kill him. Uh, uh, um, by the way, it's illegally uh, sanctioned. You're not supposed to use uh, uh, things like Novacek. Uh Navalny almost died. And thanks to some very brave Russians, including the pilot that landed, interrupted his flight, landed in the middle of nowhere, the emergency crew that helped him, and then the Russians on the ground, his wife in particular, Yulia, uh, working with Germans to get a plane to evacuate him, they saved his life. Had none of that happened. Um, He would be dead. And I remind you of that because there's a tendency in the United States to think about Russians as all kind of thinking alike and acting alike. And they're all like Putin. Uh, You know, that that pilot was a Russian and the emergency people that saved Navalny's life on the tarmac. They were Russians, too. And oh, by the way, Navalny is also Russian. So we need to get more used to thinking that there's a diversity of views inside Russia. Um, uh, why they chose then, uh, you know, I think it's because, uh, Putin is weaker than he was before, right? He's been in power for 20 years. Uh, he had a good run in the beginning because that's when the economy started to grow and not really because of anything he did. He was just in the, in the right place at the right time. Um, and then they, you know, when Putin annexed Crimea and invaded Ukraine, that was very popular in Russia as well, because there's a, there's a view there that uh, Crimea has always been a part of Russia, but that was several years ago. And now the economy has been languishing, really hasn't recovered since 2014 when the West imposed major sanctions. And there's just, People are tired of Putin. I think that's what shows in the opinion polls. They're just, they're just exhausted with him. They don't see a future. And that makes Putin more paranoid about people like Mr. Navalny. Uh, and that's why when he landed, they immediately arrested him. Uh, you know, that, that to me is a sign of weakness, not a sign of strength.
0: We're speaking, uh, just a few days after these protests, uh, were seen all over Russia and big towns and small towns. There's these viral videos of, you know, security forces getting pelted by snowballs. Uh, I guess first, what's your general sense of the significance of these protests? And two, you know, is there a discernible coalition, uh, that is making up the people who are protesting? Like who, who are these people to the best that we know who's that are coming out on the streets?
1: Uh, Great questions. Um, A couple of things that I know and then a couple of things I want to underscore that we don't know and I don't know. Uh, So first, I was surprised at how big and widespread the protests were. They were hastily organized. There's no there's no leader on the ground to organize them. Right. They were illegal. So they didn't get permits to do them. So that meant that if you were going to go out and protest, you were taking the risk of going to jail and 3000 people were arrested uh, and they were widespread. I mean, over, a, you know, di- different counts put it at a, as high as 120 cities had demonstrations, uh, you know, and some of those viral videos you talked about, you know, out in the middle of Siberia where it's 50 below zero and there's protests. Uh, completely spontaneous. It wasn't like, you know, Navalny's organization didn't do that. In fact, one of his uh, people that are close to him, uh, Ilya Yashin is his name, tweeted, uh, you know, there's there's cities on this list that I've never even heard of. Uh, and that that is striking, and that is new. Um, and remember, uh, you know, as somebody who studies and teaches about social movements here at Stanford, uh, we know from other historical cases that when tens of thousands, or maybe it was hundreds of thousands, came out for this protest, uh, knowing that they could easily be arrested and knowing that they could be beaten, and they were, that means that there are hundreds of thousands that are not, were not willing to risk that, but still have the same preferences. Uh, so, And those people, and again, we also know this from studying other countries, that that it's called uh preference falsification right they they keep to themselves about what they think but in a moment when the tide switches then they flip and so what seems like you know a very stable uh autocratic regime tumbles overnight uh you know 1989 is the most famous set of cases like that when you know months before uh east germany fell everybody talked about how incredibly strong the stasi uh, organization was in terms of oppression. So this, to me, feels like one of those you know inflection moments where the legitimacy of the Putin regime is is really undermined. Well, now, are, how are do you, you
0: suggest? Well, should I say, are, are you suggesting that the Putin regime is far less um, stable or strong than it might appear?
1: I don't. That's the part I don't know. That's what I was going to say. Uh, and here I I want to be extremely careful in what I'm saying uh Is Putin as popular as public opinion polls uh suggest the answer to that is no uh and I just want <laughs> I want everyone to remember this is a highly um, um uh surveilled uh, police state Russia is today uh everybody knows uh that everybody 's phones are listened to uh so if you're sitting out there in a kaburg uh and you know, a complete stranger from Moscow calls you and says, hey, you know, I'm working for a polling firm. Uh, we just want to know, you know, what do you think of Putin? Uh, there's only one rational answer to that question, okay? Uh, you're not going to go out of your way to, to, to reveal to a complete stranger uh, what you really think of Putin. So everybody should take with a grain of salt all those opinion polls that we read. And Remember, all opinion poll companies in Russia except for one are controlled by the state. So uh that's number one. Uh, I don't think he's as popular uh, as is oftentimes portrayed in the West. That said, that doesn't mean that Putin's regime is going to collapse overnight. I think that's a mistake that we we make in the west. We think well, unpopular leaders can't rule. No, unpopular leaders in uh, in autocratic regimes can rule for a long long time. Um and you know that, that is something I think we have to get our heads around. And and I would just say number 3 as as somebody who has written about these kinds of events and somebody who served in the government uh during these kinds of events, uh we are really bad at predicting when uh, social popular mobilization leads to regime meltdown. Uh, you know, uh, I was in the government during the Green Revolution in Iran. We didn't predict that, and we didn't predict its outcome. I was there for the Arab Spring in 2011. We didn't predict that, and, and uh, the variation in outcome, we didn't get either. And I was there the last time there were massive demonstrations in Russia, in December 2011 and 12, hundreds of thousands of people on the street we didn't predict that but it also didn't lead to democratic breakthrough in russia um so i think we should just be humble about you know what we can predict about the future but what i think is true today is that it'll be very difficult for putin to regain the stature uh that he once had you know back in the 2000s and and after ukraine when there was a majority of people that supported him and the last thing i need to say mark um uh he um he still has putin still has a lot of support within russian society uh he, i don't know what it is but there is a contingent there is a large uh, part of that society that likes what he's doing and will support him no matter what
0: so to what extent does a domestic upheaval like we're seeing in russia today Uh, or at least these demonstrations and this sort of outward challenge to Putin's regime, to what extent does that inform some of his foreign policy decisions? You know, we're we're speaking just a few months after you published this article in international security, uh, which you know, explains and seeks to identify how the domestic determinants uh, in, of, of Russia, you know, inform Putin's foreign policy. Um, I guess at once, on the off chance that listeners have not read your article, would you maybe summarize uh, what you what your main arguments are and also try to maybe help put these current events in context of your kind of main argument?
1: Uh, well, thanks for mentioning that article. I have worked on it for a long time, uh, and it's uh, you know uh, it'll be controversial in academia. So I encourage everybody to read it. Uh, the main the main are I make several arguments, uh, some of which are not just about Putin in particular. Uh, so let me go go down in concentric circles here, but I'll I'll do it in soundbite fashion, and I won't try to summarize mm-hmm. the, the entire thing. So. So, first of all, there's a big debate in academia about what, how, why do states behave the way they do, right? And the, the dominant meta paradigm, dominant theory, and by the way, I would say the dominant way that, in my experience in the government, uh, American policymakers think as well, is that it's all about power. Uh, you know, it's uh, great powers behave in certain ways uh, w- to, with each other, whether it's bipolar, multipolar, unipolar systems. And that what happens inside states doesn't really matter, uh, whether they're democracies or autocracies or this leader or that leader is, is really marginal. It's really about power and the balance of power in the international system. Uh, I reject that theory. Uh, I say, I argue that of course power is first and central. Uh, nobody cares that much about you know Moldovan foreign policy and its threats to America because Moldova doesn't have power to threaten uh, our, our security or our values or our economy. And I mean, no, no, I, I don't mean to single out Moldova. I actually, I come from a long line of Moldovans. Oh, you do? Oh, okay. Uh, well,
0: it, it the was old
1: country. Mind. I, yeah. I it wasn't even called Moldova back then. I think it was I, called I, Desarabia. I, Desarabia, of course. I know that history. <laughs> um, and I probably know something about your family's history, too, because I've, I've I've taught courses about uh, immigration oh. back then. But um, it was on my mind because uh, I was in Moldova, actually, with Vice President Biden in 2011. And um, I just remember thinking, you know, nobody ever pays attention to Moldova. Well, that's because they don't have power to influence events. By the way, though, let me just stop and put a footnote there that the vice president and now President Biden has been to Moldova matters a lot. He's also been to Georgia and Ukraine. He knows that region of the world uh, better than any other president we've ever had. But let me come back to him in a minute Uh, to finish the argument. I think, yes, power matters and, and you need to start with power. But in addition to power, I think two other variables or factors also matter in the behavior of states, one is regime type, and I do think that democracies interact with each other in a different way than democracies interact with autocracies now some it 's not a black and white thing uh, but but you know over the course of history, I think those are important things to think about uh germany and japan for instance have risen a lot in power over the last several decades but i'm not worried about us going to war with germany or japan and the, my central explanation for that is they have a system of government uh that is like our system of government and that makes us more cooperative uh and then on and conversely autocracies and especially powerful autocracies have a much tend to have a more adversarial, not always, but they tend to have a more adversarial relationship with democracies. And I don't think it's just a spurious correlation that if you look around the world today and you think about what countries does the United States have competitive or confrontational relationships with, my list would be China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, uh, every one of those countries is an autocracy. I don't think that's an accident. And then within that, I also say that individuals can matter. Um, Most certainly we're seeing in our country, the change from Trump to Biden is going to change foreign policy. Why shouldn't we assume that changes of of individuals in other countries might not change their foreign policy? So that's the abstract kind of theoretical um, um, architecture of the piece. And then I drill down on Putin uh, and the case of Russia, to 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 say two big things that as Russia has become more autocratic, uh, tensions have risen between Russia and the West and Russia and the United States, and that makes Putin more paranoid about our democratic system of government, and he therefore uses us as a you know the enemy that we're seeking to get get him and you know most certainly when I was ambassador, that's the way he framed it that Obama and Clinton and me were out to undermine his system of rule. Um, And that, I think, affects, therefore, his foreign policy and and the way he behaves abroad. A, that he frames things in this ideological way, and that, I think, is probably the most controversial argument I make. Others say he's not ideological, he's just transactional. I see a lot of evidence uh, in the way he behaves abroad that he's motivated not just by Realpolitik concerns, but ideological concerns. He's a kind of nationalist, populist, orthodox conservative, and he's against the liberal international order that he sees as threatening him. Those are ideological motivations, not just uh, you know balance of power considerations. So, can you
0: foresee a reaction, foreign policy-wise, for something Putin might do on the foreign policy front as a reaction to what you just? explained earlier was a demonstration of putin's relative weakness you know we saw these massive protests in you know, you know various cities across uh russia some small some large freezing cold temperatures you know, that suggest a wider discontent with the putin regime I, would you expect that to manifest itself in any way from informed policy decisions you might make
1: well, yes. In fact, I think it already has. Um, uh, the night after the demonstrations um, on Sunday night, uh, Sunday night is the big news night in Russian TV. They had a bunch of 60 minute like shows. Right. One, a couple in particular, are very famous. And um, I've only seen uh, summaries. I haven't had a chance to to watch them but on all those shows uh you know they're bl- they're 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 saying that Navalny is a CIA agent he's a you know he's he's not a patriot uh this is an american sponsored set of demonstrations and i'm i've been told this is why i know about it that i featured prominently uh in those uh that kind of framing of what's going on so already directly you see that as a result of what's happening domestically uh, Putin and his propagandists are are framing this as, you know, the United States is yet against us. Now, what's interesting about that, um, uh, and then, you know, uh, I think you'll see further actions in different places where he will be standing up, if you will, to uh, American imperialism, that, you know, as a way to protect Russia's national interests. Uh, in fact, on Twitter, now that I think about it, uh, when the protests were happening and I said something about them, uh, a very prominent, uh, Russian official, Dmitry Rogozin, he's, he's, oh, the yeah. head of the I
0: remember he, he used to be the, uh, ambassador to NATO, right? The rep at NATO.
1: It's right. He was yeah, the, no,
0: I remember that. That guy was, he, he, he's, he's, uh, loquacious on Twitter. If I recall, he,
1: yeah. he, he was, and, uh, I used to interact with him on Twitter when I was ambassador he's now in charge of basically the military industrial complex in russia right so a very prominent uh, figure uh he went he he went after me on twitter uh which i, I think shows you only do that if you're nervous right uh, if you feel stable and calm uh, you don't you don't engage in those kinds of things, and I think that I think you'll see more and more of that in mm-hmm. in their foreign policy behavior. The problem, though, for Putin is I don't think you can go back to that well very often. Um, you know, Ukraine, Crimea worked out for him uh, because of the particular historical relationship that Crimea has to Russia. And, you know, him blaming the West for the overthrow of the Ukrainian government in 2014. That's going to be difficult to replicate uh, in a place like, again, Moldova or somewhere uh, other places. I think uh, to to go to that play again could be uh, not as successful as it was in 2014. Uh, so we're speaking just maybe an hour
0: or maybe a couple hours after uh, Biden and Putin spoke. And and there was a readout from that call released by the White House, one also uh, released by the the Kremlin. Um, what does the readouts from that call suggest to you about the future of U.S.-Russian relations?
1: Well, um, uh, a couple of things are good. I, I, uh, I having been in the room for uh, President Obama's first call to President Medvedev, and then I, I helped or I wrote the first draft of the readout. It's good we're getting readouts, by the way. I think that's, yeah. that's a good new uh, progressive thing, I think. Uh, and you use those readouts, as the Biden team, I thought, did very carefully to express your policy, right? So what I saw in that paragraph is they're going to cooperate with Russia on issues like arms control. Uh, but they're not going to check their values at the door in doing so. And the fact that, that they went out of their way to say that uh, Navalny was discussed, uh, that is a reflection uh, of what I think is the trajectory of the new Biden foreign policy.
0: So, I mean, how does like the U.S. government support Navalny without supporting Navalny, if you know what I mean? You know, h- how do they lend their whatever support they have to the ideas behind what Navalny is trying to do, create dramatic, you know, be, be like a, a democratic opposition to Putin without, without doing so perhaps ostentatiously? I don't know.
1: That's uh, a really, really difficult, hard and important question. Um, and there's not an easy answer to it. Because the minute you lean in too much, then you undermine him and his autonomy and you make him look like he's you know, working on behalf of the West. Uh, when I was U.S. ambassador, for instance, um, uh, during the demonstrations we were talking about earlier that Mr. Navalny was one of the central organizers of, uh, we never met once, not a single time uh because uh you know I would have met with him if he wanted to I was always ready to meet with everyone and uh including you know people with whom we radically disagreed with uh, in the government and uh uh in society I met you know I I had Mr. Zernovsky who r- runs you know what some call a neo-nationalist others call neo-fascist I'll leave that to experts but uh, I met with him uh, because I thought that was part of my job to understand what was going on inside Russia. But Mr. Navalny chose never to meet with me precisely, uh, you know, as an answer to your question. And I think it's a difficult path. I, You know, generally, I think, uh, uh, and I would say this more generically about all of these kind of uh, movements for democracy in, around the world, not just Russia, American diplomats should take their cues from from what the opposition uh, advises uh, and not, you know, sometimes we do get uh, ahead of our skis and we have our domestic politics. Right. So we all got to look tough here and tough there because of our Republican critics see that particularly with China uh, right now. And I think it's it's important for us to listen to what the people on the ground think is in their interests and, uh, you know, to do to not do anything that would undermine what they're trying to do. Because after all, you know, no readout of a a presidential call, no tweet from a national security advisor of the United States of America. Um, Those are just marginal things that are gonna affect what happens domestically inside Russia or Iran or China. Uh, The real drama will be uh, decided by Russians and Iranians and Chinese. Uh, Well, Ambassador, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. Sure. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Ambassador McFallin. I must say, I think the forces of the universe conspired in my favor and your favor as the listener. I had this interview scheduled like at least six weeks ago, if not more. And of course, uh, it happened to have been conducted just a couple hours after biden's first call with vladimir putin so i got to pose some very topical questions to the ambassador anyway thank you all for listening that was my plan all along of course all right we'll see you next time bye